The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Sharp's Gun Serenade by Robert Howard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sharp's Gun Serenade by Robert Howard. I was heading for war paint jogging along easy and comfortable when I seen a galoot coming up the trail in a cloud of dust, just a burn in the breeze. He didn't stop to pass the time of day. He went past me so fast, Captain Kidd missed the snap he made at his hoss, which shows he was sure high-tailing it. I recognized him as Jack Sprague, a young waddy which worked on a spread not far from war paint. His face was pale and sought in a look of desperate resolution like a man which has just bed his pants on a pair of deuces, and he had a rope in his hand, though I couldn't see nothing he might be aiming to lasso. He went fogging on up the trail into the mountains, and I looked back to see if I could see the posse because about the only time an outlander ever heads for the high Humboldts is when he's about three jumps and a low whoop ahead of a necktie party. I seen another cloud of dust all right, but it weren't big enough for more than one man, and pretty soon I seen it was Bill Glanton of war paint. But that was good enough reason for Sprague's haste if Bill was on the prod. Glanton is from Texas, original, and whilst he is a sentimental cuss in repose, he's a ring-tailed wizard with star-spangled wheels when his feelings is ruffled, and his feelings is ruffled tolerable easy. As soon as he seen me, he yelled, Where'd he go? Who, I says. Us humble folks ain't overflowing with casual information. Jack Sprague, says he. You must have saw him. Where'd he go? He didn't say, I says. Glanton ground his teeth slightly and says, Don't start your darn hillbilly stallin' with me. I ain't got time to waste the week or so it takes to get the information out of a Humboldt Mountain varmint. I ain't chasin' that misguided idiot to do him injury. I'm pursuin' him to save his life. A gal in war paint has jilted him, and he's so broke up about it He's threatening to ride right over the mortal ridge. Us boys has been watching him and following him around, taking 
pistols and rat pison and the like away from him. But this morning he gives us the slip and taken to the hills. It was a waitress in the Ball and Heifer restaurant which put me onto his trail. He told her he was going up in the hills where he wouldn't be interfered with and hang himself. Uh, so that's why he had the rope, I says. Well, it's his own business, ain't it? No, it ain't, says Bill sternly. When a man is in his state, he ain't responsible, and it's the duty of his friends to look after him. He'll thank us in the days to come. Anyway, he owes me six bucks, and if he hangs himself, I'll never get paid. Come on, dang it. He'll lynch himself while we stands here jawing. Well, all right, I says. After all, I got to think about the reputation of the Humboldts. They ain't never been a suicide committed up here before. Quite right, says Bill. Nobody ever got a chance to kill a self up here. Someone else always done it for him. But I ignored this slander, and reined Captain Kidd around just as he was fixing to bite off Bill's hoss's ear. Jack had left the trail, but he left sign a blind man could foller. He had a long start on us, but we both had better hosses than his'n and after a while we come to where he'd tied his hoss among the brash at the foot of Cougar Mountain. We tied our hosses, too, and pushed through the brash on foot, and right away we seen him. He was climbing up the slope toward a ledge which had a tree growing on it. One limb stuck out over the edge and was just right to make a swell gallows, as I told Bill. But Bill was in a lather. He'll get to that ledge before we can catch him says he. What'll we do? Shoot him in the leg, I suggested. But Bill says, No, darn it. He'll bust himself falling down the slope. And if we start after him, he'll hustle up to the ledge and hang himself before we can get to him. Look there, though. There's a thicket growing up the slope west of the ledge. You circle round and crawl up through it, whilst I get out in the open and attracts his attention. I'll try to keep him talking till you can get up there and grab him from behind. So I ducked low in the brash and ran around the foot of the slope till I come to the thicket. Just before I div into the tangle, I seen Jack had got to the ledge and was fastening his rope to the limb which stuck out over the edge. Then I couldn't see him no more because that thicket was so dense and full of briars it was about like crawling through a pile of fighting bobcats. But as I wormed my way through it, I heard Bill yell, Hey, Jack, don't do that, you darn fool. Let me alone, Jack hollered. Don't come no closer. This here's a free country. I got a right to hang myself if I wanna. But it's a damn fool thing to do, wailed Bill. My life is ruined, asserted Jack. My true love has been betrayed. I'm a wilted tumblebug, I, I mean tumbleweed, on the sands of time. Destiny has slapped the zero brand on my flank. I, I don't know what else he said, because at that moment I stepped into something which let out an ear-splitting squall and attached itself violently to my hind leg. That was just my luck with all the thickets they was in the Humboldts. A darn cougar had to be sleeping in that un, and of course it had to be me which stepped on him. Well, no cougar's a match for a Elkins in a stand-up fight, but the way to lick him, the cougar, I mean, there ain't no way to lick a Elkins. 
is to get your lick in before he can clinch with you. But the brash was so thick I didn't see him till he had hold to me, and I was so stuck up with them dern briars I couldn't hardly move nohow. So before I had time to do anything about it, he had sunk most of his tushes and claws into me and was retching for new holts as fast as he could rake. It was old Brighamer, too, the biggest, meanest, and oldest cat in the Humboldts. Cougar Mountain is named for him, and he's so dang tough, he ain't even scared of Captain Kidd, which is plum pison to all cat animals. Before I could get old Brighamer by the neck and haul him loose from me, he had clawed my clothes all to pieces, and likewise lacerated my hide, free and generous. In fact, he made me so mad that when I did get him loose, I'd taken him by the tail and mowed down the brash in a fifteen-foot circle around me with him, till the hair wore off his tail and it slipped out of my hands. Old Brighamer then legged it down off the mountain, squalling fit to bust your eardrums. He was the maddest cougar you ever seen, but not mad enough to renew the fray. He must have recognized me. At that moment I heard Bill yelling for help up above me, so I headed up the slope, swearing loud and bleeding freely, and crashing through them bushes like a wild bull. Evidently the time for stealth and silence was past. I busted into the open and seen Bill hopping around on the edge of the ledge, trying to get hold of Jack, which was kicking like a grasshopper on the end of the rope, just out of reach. One just sneak up soft and easy, like I said, howled Bill. I was just about to argue him out of the notion. He tied the rope around his neck and was standing on the edge when that racket bust loose in the brash and scared him so bad he fell off of the ledge. Do something. Shoot the rope in two, I suggested. But Bill said, No, you cussed fool. He'd fall down the cliff and break his neck but I seen it warn't a very big tree, so I went and got my arms around it and give it a heave and loosen the roots, then kind of twisted it around so the limb Jack was hung to was over the ledge now. I reckon I busted most of the roots in the process, judging from the noise. Bill's eyes popped out when he seen that, and he retched up kind of daze-like and got the rope with his buoy. Only he forgot to grab Jack before he cut it, and Jack hit the ledge with a resounding thud. I believe he's dead, says Bill, despairingful. I'll never get that six bucks. Look how purple he is. Aw, says I, biting me off a chew of tobacker. All men which has been hung looks that way. I remember once the vigilantes hung Uncle Jefford Grimes, taken us three hours to bring him to after we cut him down. Of course he'd been hanging an hour before we found him. Shut up and help me revive him, snarled Bill, getting the noose off his neck. You select the damnedest times to converse about the sins of your infernal relatives. Look, he's coming too, because Jack had begun to gasp and kick around. So Bill brung out a bottle and poured a snort down his gullet. Pretty soon Jack sot up and felt his neck. His jaws wagged, but didn't make no sound. 
Glanton now seemed to notice my disheveled condition for the first time. What the hell happened to you? he asked in amazement. Oh, I stepped on old Brighamer, I scowled. Well, wouldn't you hang on to him? he demanded. Don't you know there's a big bounty on his belt? We could have split the dough. I've had a belly full of old Brighamer, I replied irritably. I don't care if I never see him again. Look what he done to my best britches. If you want that bounty, you go after it yourself. And let me alone, unexpectedly spoke up Jack, eyeing us balefully. I'm free, white, and twenty-one. I hangs myself if I wants to. You won't neither, says Bill sternly. Me and your pa is old friends, and I aim to save your worthless life if I have to kill you to do it. I defies you, squawked Jack, making a sudden dive between Bill's legs, and he would have got clean away if I hadn't snagged the seat of his breeches with my spur. He then displayed startling ingratitude by hitting me with a rock, and whilst we was tying him up with a hanging rope, his language was scandalous. Did you ever see such a idiot? demands Bill, setting on him and fanning himself with a Stetson. What are we going to do with him? We can't keep him tied up forever. We got to watch him close till he gets out of the notion of killing himself, I says. He can stay at our cabin for a spell. Ain't you got some sisters? says Jack. A whole cabin full, I says with feeling. You can't hardly walk without stepping on one. Why? I won't go, says he bitterly. I don't never want to see no woman again, not even a mountain woman. I'm an embittered man. The honey of love has turned to tranchler pison. Leave me to the buzzards and the cougars. I got it, says Bill. We'll take him on a hunting trip, way up in the high Humboldts. They some of that country I'd like to see myself. Reckon you're the only white man which has ever been up there, Breck, if we was to call you a white man. What you mean by that there remark? I demanded heatedly. You know damn well I ain't got nary a drop of injun blood in me. Hey, look out! I glimpsed a furry hide through the brush, and thinking it was old Brighamer coming back, I pulled my pistols and started shooting at it, when a familiar voice yelled wrathfully, Hey, you cut that out! Darn it! The next instant, a peculiar figure hove into view. A tall, gant old ranny, with long hair and whiskers, with a club in his hand, and a painter hide tied around his middle. Sprague's eyes bugged out, and he says, Who in the name of God is that? Another victim of feminine wiles, I says. That's old Joshua Braxton of Chawed Ear the oldest and toughest bachelor in South Nevada. I judge that Miss Stark, the old maid school teacher, has renewed her matrimonical designs onto him. When she starts rolling sheep's eyes at him, he always dons that there garb and takes to the high Sierras. It's the only way to protect myself, snarled Joshua. She'd marry me by force if I didn't resort to strategy. Not many folks comes up here and such as does don't recognize me in this rig. What you varmints disturbin' my solitude for? 
Your racket woke me up over in my cave. When I seen old Brigamer hightailing it for distant parts, I figured Elkins was on the mountain. We're here to save this young idiot from his own folly, says Bill. You come up here because a woman wants to marry you. Jack come up here to decorate a oak limb with his own carcass because one wouldn't marry him. Some men never knows their luck, says old Joshua enviously. Now me, I yearns to return to Chaudier, which I've been away from for a month. But whilst that old mud hen of a Miss Stark is there, I haunts the wilderness if it takes the rest of my life. Well, be at ease, Josh, says Bill. Miss Stark ain't there no more. She pulled out for Arizona three weeks ago. Hallelujah, says Joshua, throwing away his club. Now I can return and take my place among men. Hold on, says he, reaching for his club again. Likely they'll be getting some other old harridan to take her place. That new-fangled schoolhouse they got at Chaudier is a curse and a blight. We'll never be shed of husband-hunting, arithmetic shooters. I'd better stay up here after all. Don't worry, says Bill. I seen a picture of the gal that's coming from the east to take Miss Stark's place. I can assure you that a gal as young and pretty as her wouldn't never try to slap her brand on no old buzzard like you. Young and pretty, you says? I asked with sudden interest. As a racin' fellow, he declared. First time I ever known a school marm could be less than forty and have a face that didn't look like the beginnings of a long drought. She's due in Chaudier on the evening stage, and the whole town turns out to welcome her. The mayor aims to make a speech if he's sober enough, and they got a band up to play. Damn foolishness, snorted Joshua. I don't take no stock in education. I don't know, says I. That was before I got educated. There's times when I wished I could read and write. We ain't never had no school on Bear Creek. What would you read outside of the labels on the whiskey bottles? snorted old Joshua. Funny how a purty face changes a man's viewpoint, remarked Bill. I remember once Miss Stark asked you how you folks up on Bear Creek would like for her to come up and teach your children. And you'd taken one look at her face and told her it was again the principles of Bear Creek to have their peaceful innocence invaded by the corrupting influences of education. You said the folks was all banded together to resist such corruption to the last drop of blood. It's my duty to Bear Creek to provide culture for the rising generation, says I, ignoring them slanderous remarks. I feels the urge for knowledge a heaven and a surgeon in my bosom. We're going to have a school on Bear Creek, by golly, if I have to lick every old moss back in the Humboldts. I'll build a cabin for the schoolhouse myself. Where'll you get a teacher? asked Joshua. Chaudier ain't going to let you have theirn. Chaudier is too, I says. If they won't give her up peaceful, I resorts to force. Bear Creek is going to have culture, 
if I have to wade fetlock deep in gore to provide it. Let's go. I'm raring to open the ball for arts and letters. Are you all with me? No, says Jack, plenty emphatic. What we going to do with him? demands Glanton. Oh, I says, we'll tie him up some place along the road and pick him up as we come back by. All right, says Bill, ignoring Jack's impassioned protest. I'd just as soon. My nerves is frayed, riding herd on this young idiot, and I needs a little excitement to quieten them. You can always be counted on for that. Anyway, I'd like to see that there school-marm gal myself. How about you, Joshua? You're both crazy, growls Joshua. But I've lived up here on nuts and jackrabbits till I ain't sure of my own sanity. Anyway, I know the only way to disagree successfully with Elkins is to kill him, and I got strong doubts of being able to do that. Lead on. I'll do anything within reason to help keep education out of chawed ear. Tain't only my personal feelings regarding school teachers. It's the principle of the thing. Get your clothes on and let's hustle then, I says. This painter hide is all I got, says he. You can't go down into the settlements in that rig, I says. I can and will, says he. I look as civilized as you do with your clothes all tore to rags, kind of old Brighamer. I got a hoss close by. I'll get him if old Brighamer ain't already. So Joshua went to get his hoss, and me and Bill toted Jack down the slope to where our hosses was. His conversation was plentiful and heated, but we ignored it, and was just tying him onto his hoss when Joshua arrove with his critter. Then the trouble started. Captain Kidd evidently thought Joshua was some kind of varmint because every time Joshua came nigh him, he'd take in after him and run him up a tree. And every time Joshua tried to come down, Captain Kidd busted loose from me and run him back up again. I didn't get no help from Bill. All he'd done was laugh like a spotted hyena till Captain Kidd got irritated at thin guffaws and kicked him in the belly and knocked him clean through a clump of spruces. Time I got him untangled, he looked about as disreputable as what I did because most of his clothes was tore off of him. We couldn't find his hat, neither. So I tore up what was left of my shirt and he tied the pieces round his head like a patchy. Except in Jack, we was sure a wild-looking bunch. But I was disgusted thinking about how much time we was wasting, whilst all the time Bear Creek was wallering in ignorance. So the next time Captain Kidd went for Joshua, I took and busted him betwixt the ears with my six-shooter, and that had some effect onto him. A little. So we sought out, when Jack tied onto his hoss and cussing something terrible, and Joshua on a gaunt old nag he rode bareback with a hackamore. I had Bill to ride betwixt him and me so's to keep that painter hide as far away from Captain Kidd as possible, but every time the wind shifted and blowed the smell to him, Captain Kidd retched over and taken a bite at Joshua. Sometimes he bit Bill's hoss by accident, and sometimes he bit Bill. And the language Bill directed at that poor animal was shocking to hear. We was aiming for the trail that runs down from Bear Creek into the Chawed Ear Road, and we hit it a mile west of Bowie Knife Pass. We left Jack tied to a nice shady oak tree in the pass and told him we'd be back for him in a few hours, but some folks is never satisfied. 
instead of being grateful for all the trouble we'd went to for him, he acted right nasty and called us some names I wouldn't have endured if he'd been in his right mind. But we tied his hoss to the same tree and hustled down the trail and presently come out onto the war paint chawed ear road some miles west of chawed ear and there we sighted our first human a feller on a pinto mare and when he seen us he give a shriek and took out down the road toward chawed ear like the devil had him by the breeches let's ask him if the teachers got there yet i suggested so we taken out after him yelling for him to wait a minute but he just spurred his hoss that much harder, and before we'd gone any peace, Joshua's fool hoss jostled again Captain Kidd, which smelt that painter's skin and got the bit between his teeth and run Joshua and his hoss three miles through the brush before I could stop him. Bill followed us, and of course, time we got back to the road, the feller on the pinnel mare was out of sight long ago. So we headed for Chawed Ear, but everybody that lived along the road had run into their cabins and bolted the door, and they shot at us through the winders as we rode by. Bill said irritably, after having his off-ear nicked by a buffalo rival, he says, Turn it, they must know we aim to steal their school teacher. Oh, they couldn't know that, I says. I bet they's a war between Chawed Ear and Warpaint. Oh, what are they shooting at me for, then? demanded Joshua. How could they recognize you in that rig, I asked. What's that? Ahead of us, away down the road, we seen a cloud of dust, and here come a gang of men on hosses, waving guns and yelling. Well, whatever the reason is, says Bill, we better not stop to find out. Them gents is out for blood, and, says he, as the bullets begin to knock up the dust around us, I judge it's our blood. Pull into the bresh says I. I goes to chaw ear in spite of hell, high water, and all the gunmen they can raise. So we taken to the bresh, and they lit in after us, about forty or fifty of em. But we dodged and circled, and taken shortcuts old Joshua knowed about, and when we emerged into the town of chaw ear, our pursuers weren't nowheres in sight. In fact, they weren't nobody in sight. All the doors was closed and the shutters up on the cabins and saloons and stores and everything. It was peculiar. As we rode into the clearing, somebody let bam at us with a shotgun from the nearest cabin, and the load combed Joshua's whiskers. This made me mad, so I rode at the cabin and pulled my foot out in the stirrup and kicked the door in, and whilst I was doing this the feller inside hollered and jumped out the window and Bill grabbed him by the neck. It was Esau Barlow, one of Chawed Ear's confirmed citizens. What the hell's the matter with you buzzards? roared Bill. Is that you, Glanton? gasped Esau, blinking his eyes. Of course it's me, roared Bill. Do I look like a injun? Yes. Ow! I mean, I didn't know you in that there turban, says Esau. Am I dreaming, or is that Josh Braxton and Breck Ilkins? Sure it's us, snorted Joshua. Who you think? Well, says Esau, rubbing his neck and looking sideways at Joshua's painter skin, I didn't know. Where is everybody? Joshua demanded. Well, says Esau, 
A little while ago Dick Lynch rode into town with his hoss all of a lather and swore he'd just outrun the wildest war party that ever come down from the hills. Boys, says Dick, they ain't neither Injuns nor white men. They're wild men, that's what. One of em's big as a grizzly bar with no shirt on, and he's riding a hoss bigger than a bull moose. One of the others is as ragged and ugly as him, but not so big and wearing a patchy headdress. The other's got nothing on but a painter's hide and a club, and his hair and whiskers falls to his shoulders. When they seen me, says Dick, they sot up awful yells and come for me like a gang of man-eating cannibals. I've fogged it for town, says Dick warning everybody along the road to fort themselves in their cabins. Well, says Esau, when he says that, such men as was left in town got their hosses and guns, and they'd taken out up the road to meet the war party before it got into town. Well, of all the fools, I says. Say, where's the new teacher? The stage ain't a riv yet, says he. The mayor and the band rode out to meet it at the Yaller Creek crossing and escort her into town in honor. They left before Dick brung news of the war party. Come on, I says to my warriors. We likewise meets that stage. So we fogged it on through the town and down the road, and pretty soon we heard music blaring ahead of us and men yipping and shooting off their pistols like they does when they're celebrating so we judged they'd met the stage and was escorting it in. What you gonna do now? asked Bill, and about that time a noise bust out behind us, and we looked back and seen that gang of chaw-deer maniacs which had been chasing us, dusting down the road after us, waving their Winchesters. I know there weren't no use try to explain to em we weren't no war party of cannibals, They'd salivate us before we could get close enough to make them hear what we was saying. So I yelled, Come on, if they get her into town, they'll fort theirselves agin us. We takes her now. Follow me. So we swept down the road and around the bend, and there was that stagecoach coming up the road with the mayor riding alongside with his hat in his hand and a whiskey bottle sticking out of each saddlebag and his hip pocket. He was orating at the top of his voice to make himself heard above the racket the band was making. They was blowing horns and banging drums and twanging on Jews harps, and the hosses was skittish and shying and jumping. But we heard the mayor say, And so we welcomes you, Miss Devon, to our peaceful little community, where life runs smooth and tranquil and men souls is overflowin' with milk and honey. And just then we stormed around the bend and come tearin' down on em, with the mob right behind us, yellin' and cussin' and shootin', free and fervent. The next minute they was the damnedest mix-up you ever seen, what with the hosses buckin' their riders off, men yellin' and cussin', the hosses hitched to the stage, running away and knocking the mayor off on his hoss. We hit em like a cyclone, and they shot at us and hit us over the head with their music horns, 
and right in the middle of the fray the mob behind us rounded the bend and piled up amongst us before they could check their hosses, and everybody was so confused they started fighting everybody else. Nobody knowed what it was all about except me and my warriors, but Chaudier's motto is, when in doubt, shoot. So they laid into us and into each other, free and hearty, and we was far from idle. Old Joshua was laying out his fellow townsmen right and left with his elm club, saving Chaudier from education in spite of itself and Glanton was beating the band over their heads with his six-shooter, and I was trompling folks in my rush for the stage. The fool hosses had whirled around and started in the general direction of the Atlantic Ocean, and the driver and the shotgun guard couldn't stop em. But Captain Kidd overtook it in maybe a dozen strides, and I left the saddle in a flying leap and landed on it. The guard tried to shoot me with his shotgun, so I throwed it into an alder clump, and he didn't let go of it quick enough, so he went along with it. I then grabbed the ribbons out of the driver's hands and swung them fool horses around on their hind legs, and the stage kind of revolved on one wheel for a dizzy instant, and then settled down again, and we headed back up the road lickety-split, and in an instant was right amongst the fracas that was going on around Bill and Joshua. About that time I noticed that the driver was trying to stab me with a butcher knife, so I kind of tossed him off the stage, and there ain't no sense in him going around threatening to have me arrested, account of him landing head first in the base horn, so it taken seven men to pull him out. He ought to watch where he falls when he gets throwed off of a stage going at a high run. I also feels that the mayor is prone to carry petty grudges, or he wouldn't be so bitter about me accidentally running over him with all four wheels. And it ain't my fault he was stepped on by Captain Kidd, neither. Captain Kidd was just following the stage because he knowed I was on it, and it naturally irritates him to stumble over somebody, and that's why he chawed the mayor's ear. As for them other fellers which happened to get knocked down and run over by the stage, I didn't have nothing personal again em. I was just rescuing Joshua and Bill, which was outnumbered about twenty to one. I was doing them chaudier idiots a favor, if they only knowed it, because in about another minute Bill would have started using the front ends of his six-shooters instead of the butts, and the fight would have turned into a massacre. Bill has got a awful temper. Him and Joshua had did the enemy considerable damage, but the battle was going again em when I arriv on the field of carnage. As the stage crashed through the mob, I wretched down and got Joshua by the neck and pulled him out from under about fifteen men which was beaten him to death with their gun butts and pulling out his whiskers by the handfuls and I slung him up on top of the other luggage. About that time we was rushing past the dog pile which Bill was the center of, and I reached down and snared him as we went by. But three of the men, which had hold of him, wouldn't let go. So I hauled all four of them up onto the stage. I then handled the team with one hand, 
and used the other to pull them idgets loose from Bill like pulling ticks often a cow's hide, then throwed them at the mob which was chasing us. Men and hosses piled up in a stack on the road, which was further messed up by Captain Kidd plowing through it as he come busting along after the stage. And by the time we sighted Chaudier again, our enemies was far behind us, though still rambunctious. We tore through Chaudier in a fog of dust, and the women and children, which had ventured out of their shacks, squalled and run back again, though they weren't in no danger. But Chaudier folks is peculiar that way. When we was out of sight of Chaudier, I give the lines to Bill and swung down the side of the stage and stuck my head in. They was one of the purtiest gals I ever seen in there, all huddled up in a corner and looking so pale and scared I was afraid she was going to faint, which I'd heard eastern gals has a habit of doing. Oh, spare me, she begged. Please don't scalp me. Be at ease, Miss Devon, I reassured her. I ain't no injun, nor no wild man neither. Neither is my friends here. We wouldn't none of us hurt a flea. We're that refined and soft-hearted you wouldn't believe it. At that instant a wheel hit a stump and the stage jumped into the air and I bit my tongue and roared in some irritation. Bill, you condemned son of a striped polecat, stop this stage before I comes up there and breaks your cussed neck. Try, you beef-headed lummox, he invites. But he pulled up the hosses, and I'd taken off my hat and opened the door. Bill and Joshua clumbed down and peered over my shoulder. Miss Devon looked tolerable sick. Maybe it was something she ate. Miss Devon, I says, I begs your pardon for this here informal welcome, but you sees before you a man whose heart bleeds for the benighted state of his native community. I'm Breckenridge Elkins of Bear Creek, where hearts is pure and motives is lofty, but culture is weak. You sees before you, says I, growing more enthusiastic about education, the longer I looked at them big brown eyes ahern. A man which is growed up in ignorance. I can't neither read nor write. Joshua here, in the painter skin, he can't neither. And neither can Bill. That's a lie, says Bill. I can read and... I kind of stuck my elbow in his stomach. I didn't want him to spile the effect of my speech. Miss Devon was getting some of her color back. Miss Devon, I says... Will you please, ma'am, come up to Bear Creek and be our school teacher? Why, says she bewilderedly, I came west expecting to teach at Chaudier, but I haven't signed any contract, and how much was them snake hunters going to pay you? I asked. Ninety dollars a month, says she. We pays you a hundred, I says, board and lodging free. Hell's fire, says Bill. They never was that much hard cash money on Bear Creek. We all donates coon hides and corn liquor, I snapped. I sells the stuff in war paint and hands the dough to Miss Devon. Will you keep your snout out of my business? But what will the people of chewed ears say, she wonders. Nothing, I told her heartily. I'll tend to them. 
It seems so strange and irregular, says she weakly. I don't know. Then it's settled, I says. Great, let's go. Where? she gasped, grabbing hold of the stage as I clumb into the seat. Bear Creek, I says. Varmints and hoss thieves hunt the brush. Culture is on her way to Bear Creek. And we went fogging it down the road as fast as the horses could hump it. Once I looked back at Miss Devon and seen her getting pale again, so I yelled above the clatter of the wheels, Don't be scared, Miss Devon. Ain't nothing gonna hurt you. B. Elkins is on the job to protect you, and I aim to be at your side from now on. At this she said something I didn't understand. In fact, it sounded like a low moan. Then I heard Joshua say to Bill, hollering to make himself heard, Education, my eye! The big chump's looking for a wife, that's what. Ten to one she gives him the mitten. I takes that, bawled Bill, and I bellered, Shed up that noise. Quit discussing my private business so darn public. I... What's that? It sounded like firecrackers popping back down the road. Bill yelled, Holy smoke, it's them chaudier maniacs. They're still on our trail and they're gaining on us. Cussin' heartily, I poured leather onto them fool hosses, and just then we hit the mouth of the Bear Creek Trail and I swung onto it. They'd never been a wheel on that trail before, and the going was tolerable rough. It was all Bill and Joshua could do to keep from getting throwed off, and they was seldom more than one wheel on the ground at a time. Naturally, the mob gained on us, and when we roared up into Bowie Knife Pass, they weren't more than a quarter mile behind us, whooping bodacious. I pulled up the hosses beside the tree where Jack Sprague was still tied up. He gawped at Miss Devon, and she gawped back at him. Listen, I says, here's a lady in distress which we're rescuing from teaching school and chawed ear. A mob's right behind us. This ain't no time to think about yourself. Will you postpone your suicide if I turned you loose and get onto the stage and take the young lady up the trail while the rest of us turn back the mob? I will, says he with more enthusiasm than he'd showed since we stopped him from hanging himself. So I cut him loose and he clumb onto the stage. Drive on to Kiowa Canyon, I told him as he picked up the lines. Wait for us there. Don't be scared, Miss Devon. I'll soon be with you. B. Elkins never fails a lady fair. Yup, says Jack, and the stage went clattering and banging up the trail, and me and Joshua and Bill taking cover among the big rocks that was on either side of the trail. The pass was just a narrow gorge, and a lovely place for an ambush, as I remarked. Well, here they come, howling up the steep slope, yelling and spurring and shooting wild, and me and Bill give em a salute with our pistols. The charge halted plumb sudden. They knowed they was licked. They couldn't get at us because they couldn't climb the cliffs. So after firing a volley which damaged nothing but the atmosphere, they turned around and high-tailed it back towards Chaudier. I hope that's a lesson to em, says I, as I riz. Come, I can't wait to get culture started on Bear Creek. You can't wait to get sparkin' that gal, snorted Joshua. But I ignored him, 
and forked Cap'n Kid and headed up the trail, and him and Bill followed, riding double on Jack Sprague's horse. Why should I deny my honorable intentions, I says, presently. Anyone can see Miss Devon is already learning to love me. If Jack had my attraction for the fair sex, he wouldn't be lugging around a ruined life. Hey, where's the stage? Because we'd rich Kiowa Canyon, and they weren't no stage. Here's a note stuck on a tree, says Bill. I'll read it. Well, for Lord's sake, he yelped, listen to this. Dear boys, I've decided I ain't going to hang myself, and Miss Devon has decided she don't want to teach school at Bear Creek. Breck gives her the willies. She ain't altogether sure he's human. With me it's love at first sight, and she's scared if she don't marry somebody, Breck will marry her and she says I'm the best-looking prospect she saw so far. So we're heading for war paint to get married. Yours truly, Jack Sprague. Oh, don't take it like that, says Bill, as I give a maddened howl, and impulsively commence to rip up all the saplings in wretch. You've saved his life and brung him happiness. And what have I brung me, I yelled, tearing the limbs off a oak in an effort to relieve my feelings. Culture on Bear Creek is shot to hell, and my honest love has been betrayed. Bill Glanton, the next ranny you chase up into the Humboldts to commit suicide, he don't have to worry about getting bumped off. I attends to it myself. Personal. End of Sharp's Gun Serenade Texas John Alden by Robert Howard This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Texas John Alden by Robert Howard I hear the citizens of Warhoop has organized themselves into a committee of public safety, which they says is to protect the town again me, Breckenridge Elkins. Such doings as that irritates me. You'd think I was a public menace or something. I'm pretty darn tired of their slanders. I didn't tear down their cussed jail. The buffalo hunters done it. How could I when I was in it at the time? As for the Silver Boots Saloon and Dance Hall, it wouldn't have got shot up if the owner had showed any sense. It was Ace Middleton's own fault he got his hind leg busted in three places and if the city marshal had been tending to his own business instead of persecuting a poor, helpless stranger, he wouldn't have got the seat of his breeches full of buckshot. Folks which says I went to Warhoop a purpose to wreck the town is liars. I never had no idea at first of going there at all. It's off the railroad and infested with tin-horn gamblers and buffalo hunters and such-like varmints, 
and no place for a trail driver. My visit to this layer of vice came about like this. I'd rode point on a herd of longhorns clean from the lower Pecos to Goshen, where the railroad was, and I stayed there after the trail boss and the other boys headed south to spark the bell of the town, Betty Wilkinson, which gal was as purty as a brand-new bowie knife. She seemed to like me middlin' tolerable, but I had rivals, notably a snub-nosed Arizona waddy by the name of Biz Ridgeway. This varmint's persistence was so plumb aggravatin' that I come in on him sudden-like one mornin' in the back room of the Spanish Mustang in Goshen, and I says, Listen here, you sand burr in the pants of progress. I'm a peaceable man, generous and retiring to a fault, but I'm reaching the limit of my endurance. Ain't they no gals in Arizona that you got to come pesterin' mine? Why don't you go on back home where you belong, anyhow? I'm asking you like a gent to keep away from Betty Wilkinson before something unpleasant is forced to happen to you. He kind of reared up and says, I ain't the only gent which is sparkin', Betty. Why don't you make war talk with Rudwell Shapley, Jr.? He ain't nothing but a puddin-headed tenderfoot, I responded coldly. I don't consider him in no serious light. A gal with as much sense as Betty wouldn't pay him no mind. But you got a slick tongue and might snake your way ahead of me. So I'm tellin' you. He started to get up in a hurry, and I reached for my buoy. But then he sunk back down in his chair, and to my amazement, he busted into tears. What in thunder's the matter with you? I demanded, shocked. Woe is me, moaned he. You're right, Breck. I got no business hanging around Betty. But I didn't know she was your gal. I ain't got no matrimonial intentions on to her. I'm just kind of consoling myself with her company, whilst being parted by cruel fate from my own true love. Hey, I says, pricking up my ears and uncocking my pistol. You ain't in love with Betty. You got another gal? A picture of divine beauty vowed he, wiping his eyes on my bandana. Gloria Lavener, which swings in the silver boot over to Warhoop. We was to wed. Here his emotions overcome him, and he sobbed loudly. But fate interfered, he moaned. I was banished from Warhoop, never to return. In a thoughtless moment, I kind of pushed a bartender with a claw hammer, and he had a stroke of apoplexy or something, and died, and they blamed me. I was forced to flee without telling my true love where I was going. I ain't dared to go back because them folks over there is so prejudiced agin me, they threatens to arrest me on sight. My true love is eating her heart out waiting for me to come and claim her as my bride whilst I lives here in exile. Biz then wept bitterly on my shoulder till I throwed him off in some embarrassment. Why don't you write her a letter, you 
dad blame fool i asked i can't write nor read neither he said and i don't trust nobody to send word to her by she's so beautiful the critter i'd send would probably fall in love with her hisself the low-down polecat suddenly he grabbed my hand with both of his'n and said breck you got an honest face and i never did believe all they say about you anyway why don't you go and tell her i'll do better than that if it'll keep you away from betty i says i'll bring this gal over here to goshen you're a gent says he wringing my hand i wouldn't entrust nobody else with such a sacred mission just go to the silver boot and tell ace middleton you want to see gloria leventer alone all right i said i'll rent a buckboard to bring her back in i'll be counting the hours till you heaves over the horizon with my true love declaimed he reaching for the whiskey bottle so i hustled out and who should i run into but that poor sapified shrimp of a rudwell shapely junior in his monkey jacket and tight riding pants and varnished english boots we liked to had a collision as i barged through the swinging doors and he squeaked and staggered back and hollered don't shoot who said anything about shooting i asked irritably and he kind of got his color back and looked me over like i was a sideshow or something like he always done your home says he is a long way from here is it not mr elkins yeah i said i live on wolf mountain way down near where the pecos runs into the rio grande indeed he said kind of hopefully i suppose you'll be returning soon nah i ain't i says i'll probably stay here all fall oh says he dejectedly and went off looking like someone had kicked him in the pants i wondered why he should get so down in the mouth just because i weren't going home but them tenderfoots ain't got no sense and they ain't no use wasting time trying to figure out why they does things cause they generally don't know theirselves for instance why should an object like rudwell shapely jr come to goshen i wanted to know i asked him once point blank and he says it was a primitive urge to see life in the raw whatever that means i thought maybe he was talking about grub but the cook at the laramie restaurant says he takes his beefsteaks well done like the rest of us well anyway i got onto my hoss cap'n kid and pulled for warhoop which laid some miles west of goshen i weren't wasting no time because the quicker i got gloria leventer to goshen the quicker i'd have a clear field with betty of course it would have been easier and quicker just to shoot biz but i didn't know how betty'd take it women is funny that way i figured to eat dinner at the halfway house a tavern which stood on the prairie about halfway between goshen and warhoop but as i approached it i met a most peculiar looking object heading east i presently recognized it as a cowboy named tump garrison and he looked like he'd been through a sorghum mill his hat brim was pulled loose from the crown and hung around his neck like a collar his clothes hung in rags 
His face was skint all over, and one ear showed signs of having been chawed on long and earnestly. Where was the tornado, I asked, pulling up. He gave me a suspicious look out of the eye he could still see with. Oh, it's you, Breck, he says then. My brains is so addled, I didn't recognize you at first. In fact, says he, tenderly caressing a lump on his head the size of a turkey egg, it's just a few minutes ago I managed to remember my own name. What happened, I asked with interest. I ain't sure, says he, spitting out two or three loose tushes. Leastwise, I ain't sure just what happened after that there table leg was shattered over my head. Things is a little foggy after that, but up to that time my memory is flawless. Briefly, Breck, says he, rising in his stirrups to rub his pants where they was the print of a boot heel. I discovered that I warn't welcome at the halfway house, and big as you be, I advises you to avoid it like you would the yaller jandice. It's a public tavern, I says. It was, says he, working his right leg to see if it was still in giant. It was till Moose Harrison, the buffalo hunter, arrove there to hold a private celebration of his own. He don't like cattle, nor them which handles em. He told me so hisself, just before he hit me with the bung starter. He said he weren't aiming to be pestered by no darn Texas cattle pushers whilst he's enjoying a little relaxation. It was just after issuing this statement that he throwed me through the roulette wheel. You ain't from Texas, I said. You're from the nations. That's what I told him whilst he was doing a war dance on my brisket, says Tump. But he said he was too broad-minded to bother with technicalities. Anyway, he says cowboys was the plague of the range, irregardless of where they come from. Oh, he did, did he? I says irritably. Well, I ain't hunting trouble. I'm on an errand of mercy. But he better not shoot off his big mouth to me. I eats my dinner at the halfway house, regardless of all the buffalo hunters north of the Cimarron. I'd give a dollar to see the fun, says Tump. But my other eyes closing fast and I got to get amongst friends. So he pulled for Goshen, and I rode on to the halfway house, where I seen a big bay hoss tied to the hitch rack. I watered Captain Kidd and went in. the bartender says. Get out quick as you can. Moose Harrison's asleep in the back room. I'm hungry, I responded, setting down at a table which stood nigh the bar. Bring me a steak with potatoes and onions and a quart of coffee and a can of clean peaches. And whilst the stuff's cooking, give me nine or ten bottles of beer to wash the dust out of my gullet. Listen, says the barkeep, reflect and consider. You're young and life is sweet. 
Don't you know that Moose Harrison is pison to anything that looks like a cowpuncher? When he's on a whiskey tear, as at present, he's more painter than human. He's killed more men. Will you stop blatting and bring me my rations? I requested. He shakes his head, sad-like, and says, Well, all right. After all, it's your hide. At least try not to make no racket. He swore to have the lifeblood of anybody which wakes him up. I said I didn't want no trouble with nobody, and he tiptoed back to the kitchen and whispered my order to the cook, then brung me nine or ten bottles of beer and slipped back behind the bar and watched me with morbid fascination. I drunk the beer, and whilst drinking I got to kind of broodin' about Moose Harrison having the nerve to order everybody to keep quiet whilst he slept. But they're liars which claims I throwed the empty bottles at the door in the back room, a purpose to wake Harrison up. When the waiter brung my grub, I wanted to clear the table to make room for it, so I just kind of tossed the bottles aside, and could I help it if they all busted on the back room door? Was it my fault that Harrison was such a light sleeper? But the bartender moaned and ducked down behind the bar, and the waiter run through the kitchen and followed the cook in a sprint across the prairie, and a most remarkable beller burst forth from the back room. The next instant the door was tore off the hinges, and an enormous human came bulging into the barroom. He wore buckskins, his whiskers bristled, and his eyes was red as a drunk Comanche's. What in tarnation! remarked he in a voice which cracked the window panes. Does my gall-blasted eyes deceive me? Is that there a cussed cow-puncher sitting there wolfin' beefsteak as brash as if he was a white man? You ride herd on them insults, I roared, rising sudden, and his eyes kind of popped when he seen I was about three inches taller than him. I got as much right here as you have. Name your weapons, blustered he. He had a butcher knife and two six-shooters on his belt. Name em yourself, I snorted. If you think you're such a hell whizzer at fist and skull, why shuck your weapon belt and I'll claw your ears off with my bare hands. That suits me, says he. I'll festoon that bar with your innards and he takes hold of his belt like he was going to unbuckle it. Then, quick as a flash, he whipped out a gun. But I was watching for that, and my right hand forty-five banged just as his muzzle cleared leather. The barkeep stuck his head up from behind the bar. Heck, he says, wild-eyed, you beat Moose Harrison to the draw, and him with the edge. I wouldn't have believed it was possible if I hadn't saw it. But his friends'll ride your trail for this. Warn't it self-defense, I demanded. A clear case, says he. But that won't mean nothing to them wild and woolly buffalo skinners. You better get back to Goshen where you got friends. I got business in Warhoop, I says. Dang it, my coffee's cold. Dispose of the carcass and heat it up, will you? So he drug Harrison out, cussin' cause he was so heavy, 
claiming I ought to help him. But I told him it weren't my tavern. I also refused to pay for a decanter which Harrison's wild shot had busted. He got mad and said he hoped the buffalo hunters did hang me. But I told him they'd have to catch me without my guns first, and I slept with them on. Then I finished my dinner and pulled for Warhoop. It was about sundown when I got there, and I was pretty hungry again. But I aimed to see Biz's gal before I'd done anything else. So I put my hoss in the livery stable and seen he had a big feed. Then I headed for the silver booth, which is the biggest joint in town. There was plenty hilarity going on, but I seen no cowboys. The revelers was mostly gamblers, or buffalo hunters, or soldiers, or freighters. Warhoop weren't popular with cattlemen. They weren't no buyers or loading pins there, and for pleasure it weren't nigh as good a town as Goshen anyway. I asked a barman where Ace Middleton was, and he pointed out a big feller with a generous tummy, decorated with a fancy vest and a gold watch chain about the size of a trace chain. He wore mighty handsome clothes and a diamond hoss-shoe stick-pin and waxed mustache. So I went up to him. He looked me over with very little favor. Oh, a cowpuncher, eh? Well, your money's as good as anybody's. Enjoy yourself, but don't get wild. I ain't aiming to get wild, I says. I want to see Gloria Levener. When I says that, he give a convulsive start and choked on a cigar. Everybody nigh us stopped laughing and talking and turned to watch us. What did you say? he gurgled, gagging up the cigar. Did I honestly hear you asking to see Gloria Levener? Sure, I says. I aim to take her back to Goshen to get married. You deleted expletive, says he, and grabbed up a table and broke off a leg and hit me over the head with it. It was most unexpected and took me plumb off guard. I hadn't no idea what he was busting the table up for, and I was too surprised to duck. If it hadn't been for my Stetson, it might have cracked my head. As it was, it knocked me back into the crowd, but before I could get my balance, three or four bouncers grabbed me and somebody jerked my pistol out of the scabbard. Throw him out, roared Ace, acting like a wild man. He was plumb purple in the face. Steal my girl, will he? Hold him while I bust him in the snoot. He then rushed up and hit me very severely in the nose, whilst them bouncers was holding my arms. Well, up to that time I hadn't made no resistance. I was too astonished. But this was going too far, even if Ace was loco, as it appeared. Nobody weren't holding my legs, so I kicked Ace in the stomach, and he curled up on the floor with a strangled shriek. I then started spurring them bouncers in the legs, and they yelled and let go of me, and somebody hit me in the ear with a blackjack. That made me mad, so I retched for my buoy in my boot, but a big red-headed maverick kicked me in the face when I stooped down. That straightened me up, so I hit him on the jaw, and he fell down across Ace, which was holding his stomach and trying to yell for the city marshal. Some low-minded scoundrel got a stranglehold around my neck from behind and started beating me on the head with a pair of brass knucks. I ducked and throwed him over my head, then I kicked out backwards and knocked over a couple more. 
but a scar-faced thug with a baseball bat got in a full-armed lick about that time, and I went to my knees feeling like my skull was dislocated. Six or seven of them then throwed themselves onto me with howls of joy, and I seen I'd have to use violence in spite of myself. So I drawed my buoy and started cutting my way through them. They couldn't let go of me quicker if I'd been a cougar. They scattered every which away, splattering blood and howling blue murder, and I riz, rarin' and rampacious. Somebody shot at me just then, and I wheeled to locate him when a man run in at the door and pointed a pistol at me. Before I could sling my knife through him, which was my earnest intention, he hollered, Drop your deadly weapon! I'm the city marshal and you're under arrest! What for? I demanded. I ain't done nothing. Nothing! says Ave Smiddleton fiercely, as his menials lifted him onto his feet. You've just sliced pieces out of five or six of our leading citizens, and here's my head bouncer, Red Krogan, out cold with a busted jaw, to say nothing of pushing my stomach through my spine. Ow! You must have mule blood in you, blast your soul! Sentry, he ordered the marshal. He came in here drunk and raging and threatening, and started a fight for nothing. Do your duty. Arrest that cussed outlaw. Well, Pap always tells me not to never resist no officer of the law. And anyway, the marshal had my gun. And so many people was hollering and cussing and talking, it kind of confused me. When they's any thinking to be did, I like to have a quiet place to do it in plenty of time. So the first thing I knowed, Santry had handcuffs on me, and he hauls me off down the street with a big crowd follering, making remarks which is supposed to be funny. They come to a log hut with bars on the back window, take off the handcuffs, shove me in and lock the door. There I was in jail without even seeing Gloria Levener. It was plumb disgustful. The crowd all hustled back to the silver boot to watch them fellers get sewed up which had fell afoul of my buoy, all but one fat cuss which said he was a guard, and he sopped down in the front of the jail with a double-barreled shotgun across his lap and went to sleep. Well, there weren't nothing in the jail but a bunk with a hoss blanket on it and a wooden bench. The bunk was too short for me to sleep on with any comfort, being built for a six-foot man, so I sopped down on it and waited for someone to bring me some grub. So after a while the marshal come and looked in at the window and cussed me. It's a good thing for you, he says, that you didn't kill none of them fellers. As it is, maybe we won't hang you. You won't have to hang me if you don't bring me some grub pretty soon, I says. Are you gonna let me starve in this darn jail? We don't encourage crime in our town by feeding criminals, he says. If you want grub, give me the money to buy it with. I told him I didn't have but five bucks, and I thought I'd pay him a fine with that. He said five bucks wouldn't begin to pay him a fine, so I give him the five spot to buy grub with, and he took it and went off. I waited and waited, but he didn't come. I hollered to the guard, but he kept on snoring. And pretty soon someone said, at the winder. I went over and looked out, and they was a woman standing behind the jail. The moon had come up over the prairie as bright as day, and though she had a cloak with a hood thrown over her, 
By what I could see of her face, she was awful purty. I'm Gloria Leventer, says she. I'm risking my life coming here. But I wanted to get a look at the man who was crazy enough to tell Ace Middleton he wanted to see me. What's crazy about that, I asked. Don't you know Ace has killed three men already for trying to flirt with me? says she. Any man who can break Red Krogan's jaw like you did must be a bear cat. But it was sheer madness to tell Ace you wanted to marry me. Ah, oh, he never give me time to explain about that, I says. It weren't me which wants to marry you. But what business is it of Middleton's? This here's a free country. That's what I thought till I started working for him, she says bitterly. He fell in love with me, and he's so insanely jealous, he won't let anyone even speak to me. He keeps me practically a prisoner and watches me like a hawk. I can't get away from him. Nobody in town dares to help me. They won't even rent me a horse at the livery stable. You see, Ace owns most of the town, and lots of people are in debt to him. The rest are afraid of him. I guess I'll have to spend the rest of my life under his thumb, she says despairfully. You won't neither, I says. As soon as I can get word to my friends in Goshen to send me a loan to pay my fine and get me out of this fool jail, I'll take you to Goshen where your true love is pining for you. My true love, says she, kind of startled like. What do you mean? Biz Ridgeway is in Goshen, I says. He don't dare come after you hisself, so he sent me to fetch you. She didn't say nothing for a spell, and then she spoke kind of breathless. All right, I must get back to the silver boot now, or Ace will miss me and start looking for me. I'll find Santry and pay your fine tonight. When he lets you out, come to the back door of the silver boot and wait in the alley. I'll come to you there as soon as I can slip away. So I said all right, and she went away. The guard sitting in front of the jail with his shotgun across his knees hadn't never woke up. But he did wake up about fifteen minutes after she left. A gang of men came up the street, whooping and cussing, and he jumped to his feet. Curses! Here comes Brant Hanson and the mob of them buffler hunters, and they got a rope! They're heading for the jail! Who do you reckon they're after, I inquired. They ain't nobody in jail but you, he suggested pointedly. And in about a minute, they ain't going to be nobody nigh it but you and them. When Hanson and his bunch is in liquor, they don't care who they shoots. He then laid down a shotgun and lit a shuck down a back alley as hard as he could leg it. So about a dozen buffalo hunters in buckskins and whiskers come surging up to the jail and kicked on the door. They couldn't get the door open, so they went around behind the shack and looked in at the window. It's him, all right, says one of them. Let's shoot him through the window. But the other said, Nah, let's do the job in proper order. And I asked them what they wanted. We aims to hang you, they answered enthusiastically. You can't do that, I says. It's again the law. You killed Moose Harrison said the biggest one, which they called Hanson. Well, it was an even break, and he tried to get the drop on me, I says. Then Hanson says, Enough of such quibbling. 
We've made up our mind to hang you, so let's don't hear no more arguments about it. Here, he says to his pals, tie a rope to the bars and we'll jerk the whole winder out. It'll be easier than busting down the door. And hustle up, because I'm in a hurry to get back to that poker game at the Rarin' Buffalo. So they tied a rope onto the bars and all laid onto it and heaved and grunted. Some of the bars come loose at one end. I picked up the bench aiming to bust their fool skulls with it as they clumb through the winder, but just then another feller run up. Wait, boys, he hollered. Don't waste your muscle. I'd just seen Santry down at the Topeka Queen gambling with the money he'd taken off that dern cowboy, and he'd give me the key to the door. So they abandoned the winder and surged round to the front of the jail, and I quickly propped the bench again the door, and run to the winder and tore out them bars which is already loose. I could hear em rattling at the door, and as I clumb through the winder one of em said, The locks turned, but the door stuck. Heave again it. So whilst they have, I run around the jail and pick up the guard's shotgun where he dropped it when he run off. Just then the bench give way inside and the door flew open, and all them fellers tried to crowd through. As a result, they was all jammed up in the door and cussing something fierce. Quit crowding, yelled Hanson. Holy catamount, he's gone. The jail's empty. I then up with my shotgun and give em both barrels in the seat of their breeches, which was the handiest to aim at, and they let out a most amazing squall, and busted loose and fell head first into the jail. Some of em kept on going head down like they'd started, and hit the back wall so hard it knocked em stiff, and the others fell over em. They was all tangled up in a pile, cussin' and yellin' to beat the devil. So I slammed the door and locked it and run around behind the jailhouse. Hanson was trying to climb out the window, so I hit him over the head with my shotgun and he fell back inside and hollered, Help! I'm mortally injured! Shut up that unseemly clamor, I said sternly. Ain't none of you hurt bad. Throw your guns out the window and lay down on the floor. Hustle before I gives you another blast through the window. They didn't know the shotgun was empty. So they throwed their weapons out in a hurry and laid down, but they weren't quiet about it. They seemed to consider they'd been subjected to cruel and unusual treatment, and the bird shot in their sterns must have been a stinging right smart, because the language they used was plumb painful to hear. I stuck a couple of their pistols in my belt. If one of you shows your head at that window within an hour, I says, he'll get it blowed off. I then snuck back into the shatters and headed for the livery stable. The livery stable man was reading a newspaper by a lantern, and he looked surprised and said he thought I was in jail. I ignored this remark and told him to hitch me a fast hoss to a buckboard whilst I saddled Captain Kidd. Wait a minute, says he. I hear tell you told Ace Middleton you ain't to elope with Gloria Levener. You taken this rig for her? Yes, I am, I says. Well, I'm a friend of Middleton's, he says, and I won't rent you no rig under no circumstances. Then get out of my way, I said. I'll hitch the hoss up myself. He then drawed a buoy, so I clinched with him, and as we was wrestling around, he sort of knocked his head against the swingle tree I happened to have in my hand at the time, and collapses with a low gurgle. So I tied him up and rolled him under an oats bin. 
I also rolled out a buckboard and hitched the best-looking harness hoss I could find to it. And them folks is liars, which is going around saying I stole that there outfit. It was sent back later. I saddles my hoss and tied him on behind the buckboard and got in and started for the silver boot, wondering how long it'd take them fool buffalo hunters to find out I was just bluffing and weren't lying out behind the jail to shoot em as they climbed out. I turned into the alley which run behind the silver boot, then tied the hosses and went up to the back door and peeked in. Gloria was there. She grabbed me, and I could feel her trembling. "'I thought you'd never come,' she whispered. "'It'll be time for my singing act again in just a few minutes. I've been waiting here ever since I paid Sandra your fine. What kept you so long? He left the silver boot as soon as I gave him money.' He never turned me out, the low-down skunk, I muttered. Some, uh, friends got me out. Come on, get in the buckboard. I helped her up and give her the lines. I got a debt to settle before I leave town, I said. You go on and wait for me at that clump of cottonwoods east of town. I'll be on pretty soon. So she pulled out in a hurry, and I got on to Captain Kidd. I rode him round to the front of the silver boot, tied him to the hitch rack, and dismounted. The silver boot was crowded. I could see Ace strutting around, chawing a big black cigar, and joking and slapping folks on the back. Everybody was having such a hilarious time, nobody noticed me as I stood in the barway. So I pulled the Buffalo Hunter's forty-fives and let bam at the mirror behind the bar. The barman yelped and ducked the flying glass, and everybody whirled and gaped, and Ace jerked his cigar out of his mouth and bawled, "'It's that turn cowpuncher again! Get him!' But them bouncers had seen my guns, and they was shying away, all except the scar-faced thug which had hit me with the bat, and he whipped a gun from under his vest. So I shot him through the right shoulder, and he fell over behind the monte table." I'd begun to spray the crowd with hot lead, free and generous, and they stampeded every which away. Some went through the window, glass and all, and some went out the side doors, and some busted down the back door in their flight. I likewise riddled the mirror behind the bar and shot down some of the hanging lamps and busted most of the bottles on the shelves. Ace ducked behind a stack of beer kegs and opened fire on me, but he showed poor judgment in not noticing he was right under a hanging lamp. I shot it off the ceiling, and it fell down on his head, and you ought to have heard him holler when the burning aisle run down his weathless neck. He come prancing into the open, wiping his neck with one hand and trying to shoot me with the other, and I drilled him through the hind leg. He fell down and bellowed like a bull with its tail cotched in a fence gate. You darn murderer, says he passionately. I'll have your life for this. Shut up, I snarled. I'm just paying you back for all the pain and humiliation I suffered in this din of iniquity. At this moment a bartender riz up from behind a billiard table with a sawed-off shotgun, but I shot it out of his hands before he could cock it and he fell over backwards hollering, Spare my life! Just then somebody yelled, Halt! In the name of the law! And I looked around and saw it was that tin-horn marshal named Santry with a gun in his hand. I arrest you again, he bawled, 
Lay down your weapons. I'll lay your carcass down, I responded. You ain't fitting for to be no law officer. You gambled away the five dollars I give you for grub, and you took the fine money Miss Lavenner gave you, and didn't turn me out. And you give the key to them mobsters which wanted to hang me. You ain't no law. You're a dern outlaw yourself. Now you've got a gun in your hand same as me. Either start shooting or throw it down. Well, he hollered, Don't shoot! and throwed it down and heisted his hands. I seen he had my knife and pistol stuck in his belt, so I took them off of him and tossed the forty-fives I'd been using onto the billiard table and said, Give these back to the buffalo hunters. But just then he whipped out a thirty-eight he was wearing under his arm and shot at me and knocked my hat off. Then he turned and run around the end of the bar, all bent over to get his head below it. So I grabbed the bartender's shotgun and let Bam with both barrels, just as his rear end was going out of sight. He shrieked blue ruin and started having a fit behind the bar. So I throwed the shotgun through the roulette wheel and stalked forth, leaving Ace and the bouncer and the marshal wailing and wallering on the floor. It was plumb disgustful the way they wept and cussed over their trifling injuries. I come out on the street so sudden that them cusses which was hiding behind the hoss trough to shoot me as I come out was took by surprise and only grazed me in a few places. So I throwed a few slugs amongst them and they took to their heels. I got on Captain Kidd and headed east down the street, ignoring the shots fired at me from the alleys and winders. That is, I ignored them except to shoot back at them as I run and I reckon that's how the mayor got the lobe of his ear shot off. I thought I heard somebody holler when I answered a shot fired at me from behind the mayor's board fence. Well, when I got to the clump of cottonwoods, there weren't no sign of Gloria, the hoss, or the buckboard. But there was a note stuck up on a tree which I grabbed and read by the light of the moon. It said, Dear Tejano, your friend must have been kidding you. I never even knew anybody named Biz Ridgeway, but I'm taking this chance of getting away from Ace. I'm heading for Trevano Springs, and I'll send the buckboard back from there. Thank you for everything. Gloria Levener. I got to Goshen about sunup, having loped all the way. Biz Ridgeway was at the bar of the Spanish Mustang, and when he seen me, he turned pale and dived for the winder, but I grabbed him. What you mean by telling me that lie about you and Gloria Lavenner? I demanded. Was you trying to get me killed? Well, says he, to tell you the truth, Breck, I was. All's fair in love and war, you know. I wanted to get you out of the way so I'd have a clear field with Betty Wilkinson, and I knowed about Ace Middleton and Gloria and figured he'd do the job if I sent you over there. But you needn't get mad. It didn't do me no good. Betty's already married. What? I yelled. He ducked instinctively. Yeah, he says. He took advantage of your absence to pop the question, and she accepted him and they're on their way to Kansas City for their honeymoon. He never had the nerve to ask her while you was in town, for fear you'd shoot him. 
They're going to live in the east because he's too scared of you to come back. Who? I screamed, foaming slightly at the mouth. Rudwell's shapely junior, says he. It's all your fault. It was at this moment that I dislocated Biz Ridgeway's hind leg. I likewise defies the criticism which has been directed at this perfectly natural action. An Elkins with a busted heart is no man to trifle with. End of Texas John Alden End of Bear Creek Collection Volume 2